Hello and welcome to Ramblings, a podcast about stories and storytelling. I'm Mark, I have a background in English literature and storytelling. And I'm Charlene and I have a background in social work and psychology. So we're going to try a slightly different format this week. We've been doing some extremely long and rambly episodes, which is part of the point of the podcast, but they are getting a little out of hand. We're going to try and be a little bit less exhaustive with the work and instead pick out some major themes and some major storytelling elements that we want to focus on and not so much on other things. So if you like the new format or preferred it when we did longer rambly ones, let us know and we'll, we may listen. Part of that is because I've been doing all the editing while I haven't been working, but now I've started working part-time and I'm trying to find other part-time jobs, so my editing time is much shorter. <laughs> but yay, employment! And income, yay! Yes, mostly the income thing. So This week we're joined by Misty, who is intent on making noise every time I try to speak. This week we're doing an episode on The Mandalorian, because we just finished The Mandalorian and want to talk about it. We're not quite sure where this will appear in our lineup, so... You know as well as we do. In fact, better than we do at this moment. If it has replaced a different episode that you were really excited for, don't worry, we'll still have that one next week. I'm just going to do a string of we interrupt this podcast episodes. Yes. Yeah. We interrupt this podcast to bring you this podcast! <laughs> um, that's a nice little bit that you can put at the end. Let's see. Therefore, we will fairly obviously be spoiling The Mandalorian. Well, season one of The Mandalorian. Yes, if we could spoil season two of The Mandalorian, then this podcast would be very much more popular. We're secretly Disney execs. Yep. That's it. It will have some other spoiler warnings to drop in here, probably. They're going to be right here. Hello! We are fairly heavy on our spoiler warnings this week. Okay, so we talk about various plot elements of Steven Universe, an old book called Sophie's World, the plot of the game Skyrim. Uh, we discuss some elements of Firefly, the TV series. We also talk about episodes four to six of Star Wars, which I assume that you've watched because you've listened to the thing about The Mandalorian. And Charlene talks a bit about some of the Expanded Universe books, because she's a massive nerd. Um, <laughs> in particular, she discusses the the original Thrawn trilogy. It is currently being rewritten. She's not read the new version of it. And also, we do some hypothesizing on what might appear in Season 2. That's just our guesses based off of the first season. So I just in case you wanted to think of all those things for yourself. As far as content warnings, we don't really have much in the way of content warnings. There is some mention of genocide because of, you know, the Empire, but that's, I think, about it. Content warning for imperialism. Yes, imperialism, which I'm sure is very upsetting to a lot of people. Most people, I would hope. I mean, if you're not an imperial, then... Some people actively don't think about it. Yeah. Okay, and back to the past. Welcome back. You'll notice that we didn't mention that we'll be spoiling Episode 9, The Rise of Skywalker. There's two really good reasons for that. The first one is that I think it would be kind of a dick move to spoil that. It's still in theatres. There are some people who haven't seen it. The second thing is... We haven't seen it. (laughs) We are some of those people. Yeah. Okay, so let's get into it. Okay, so I think the first thing we want to talk about was the storytelling element. The protagonists in this 
show. They've made some bold choices for how to work that. So you have two protagonists. Kind of. I mean, is Baby Yoda a protagonist? Are we calling it Baby Yoda? I mean, that's what everyone calls it. Yeah, I'd much prefer calling it the child. Okay, fine. The child. Okay, we're going to randomly alternate between calling it Baby Yoda and the child, just Mm -hmm. depending on how we're feeling. That's good. But if whatever we mean, we mean the small green bundle thing. Tiny green forced toddler. Yes, we'll say that every time. Mm -hmm. Uh, But regardless of what we call it, you have the child who is pretty much non-vocal, doesn't really express words, Mm -hmm. just occasional little coos. And the Mandalorian, who almost expresses no words. He doesn't talk much at all in the first couple of episodes. He does get a little bit more verbose as he goes along. But coupled with that, he's wearing a helmet for the majority of the show, which masks facial features. So a lot of the basic communication features that you get to know a protagonist through are shielded from the audience. Hello, it's Charlene from the future. For the next couple of minutes during this particular discussion, I am going to unintentionally perpetuate an urban legend of communication science by not clarifying that the 7% of communication is verbal percentage breakdown is based on a widespread misinterpretation and overgeneralization of a 1967 study that was specifically talking about and investigating communication of emotion. This is not meant to indicate that the specific words that you use when communicating do not matter, don't need to be considered, and only make up 7% of the meaning that anyone takes from something that you say. It is only meant to talk about and contextualize the amount of emotional data we get from communication with other people as far as that person's feelings and like interiority. So I just want to clarify that now. I've put a couple of links in the show notes to get a little bit more information about that. Just so you know, words do matter. They're very important. Every word, especially in a story, is chosen with a lot of intention and purpose, or at least it should be. And I uh, do not mean to spread and compound this overgeneralization. And uh, back to the discussion about our protagonists. Yeah, and part of what's so interesting about that to me is that it does really emphasize how little of what a person communicates comes through in the actual words that they use. It's one of the things that was emphasized a lot during my MSW program and definitely came up as part of my psychology degree as well, that like human communication is overwhelmingly nonverbal. It's like the words that you use, it's like 7% or something like that of the meaning conveyed to another person. Almost everything is from your tone, your body language, and your facial expression. And that is why we can relate so well to the child. He he does not use words. We assume it's a male child because there's no cue otherwise. I think it is clarified in one of the last two episodes. I think there is a little, like, note that it is male. Yeah. So... The child does not ever use words, per se, as you said, but we do get tone from, like, the vocalizations that he makes, and we do get gestures and facial expressions, and so we are able to tell, like, what he's trying to do, 
what emotions he's feeling and things like that. And it's similar for The Mandalorian, but they've, as you said, they've removed another important part of the way we communicate just as people by removing our ability to assess his face, which means that all you pretty much have left is his voice and the most gross motor movements because the armor also masks most of the subtler behavioral body language, which is completely highlighted at the end when IG-11 calls him out on his bullshit when he's saying, oh, I'm not sad. And IG-11's like, no, I'm a nurse droid. I can tell you're sad because I analyzed your voice. Yeah, And that's really interesting and also such a appropriate thing for a nurse droid to be able to do because children are so bad at even knowing what their emotions are or what their physical needs are, let alone communicating those accurately to other people. Like that's a skill that even a lot of adults aren't great at. So I just, I think it's really interesting how well that aligns with just the way we as people communicate. Yeah. As far as like from a, how you handle that as a storyteller point of view, I think that they did a really nice job of it at some points. In the first episode, I think that they are trying quite hard to set him up as badass bounty hunter. Forget Boba Fett. Mm-hmm. We've got this guy now, whose name we finally learn and I promptly forgot. I mean, it should be Maurice. It's a missed opportunity because he's a space cowboy and a gangster of love. <laughs> I told you I would make a terrible premeditated joke during this podcast and you didn't believe me. I don't know if I'm more mad at how bad the joke was or that I set you up for it so easily. <laughs> that was pretty pretty kind of you, thank you. I'm sorry to everyone else. <laughs> if we keep it. Um, I suspect we will. I suspect we will too. Because you're proud of that joke, I know. And it occurred to me it. later that, like, yeah, that he is a space cat. <laughs> <laughs> and there are some uh, similarities people have chosen to draw between it and Serenity. Oh, definitely. Um, even down to, like, there's a vague similarity in the structure of the ship with two big cylindrical engines and things, mm-hmm. and, and then a large box in between them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and a gruff captain of a ship who doesn't, you know, want to be seen as, like, tender-hearted and caring, but ends up risking his life and his reputation and his ability to get work to protect a helpless person who's being sought after by a nefarious and imperial-type organization. Yeah. Yeah. But to go back to what I was saying before your joke... <laughs> Do you know... <laughs> really? Do you don't think it was funny? I'm being deliberate. They, they... Bounty Hunter's a type of gangster. Part of a criminal underworld. It works. And he's part of the clan uh, of two... I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, I don't think that's what they mean when they say gangster or love. But, um, but in that first episode, like it, you're supposed to think he's very hard and stuff, mm-hmm. and then he like re- I remember when we finished watching the episode and he's like saving the child, mm-hmm. going, "Is that his emotions?" Meaning that he go like he's like, "No, you're not going to kill the child. It's cute and helpless and needs protecting." Mm-hmm. Or is it? that the child is using the Force and mind-tricking him into protecting it. Which I guess to an extent is still a question at the end of the series. It definitely is, especially for a creature so young and with such clearly powerful Force abilities. Like, that might not even be an intentional thing. And I would I would honestly expect it to be, like, a subconscious use of, of, of whatever abilities the child had for you know, self-preservation, essentially. At that age, like, you don't necessarily have a great idea of moral right and wrong and, you know, 
the autonomy of another person's mind and things like that, that it would be an invasion to do that. Children and toddlers like are in the process of figuring out how to survive in the world. And really the only tools that they have is the ability to manipulate adults into taking care of them. That's like, why they have big eyes. That's why they have big eyes, at least for us. Like we, yeah. we respond well to that. But like even particularly human infants, and obviously that's not true of the child, they've traded every other survival capability that a lot of other infants in the animal kingdom have for crying that cannot be ignored. Literally. Like, that's the thing they can do that we respond to on a very primal level for the most part. Obviously, some people are maybe more resistant to that than others, but an infant's major task is to figure out whether people are going to take care of it or not, whether it can trust its caregivers to provide for it. So they're not thinking about how you know rude or mean it is to wake you up in the middle of the night or whatever. So I wouldn't blame the child for manipulating the Mandalorian and others' minds Yeah. in that way. So... So. I, I think that's probably something that, like, they might evaluate in season two, mm-hmm. maybe. I don't know. I feel that by the end of the season, there seems to be a genuine bond there. Yeah. Which, it it could still be mm-hmm. influenced by the Force, and, like, if it... I could see it most likely being tackled by as an episode in season two where the Mandalorian finds out that Jedi mind tricks are a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and questioning whether the affection he feels for this child is genuine. Mm-hmm. Um... And presumably coming around to the conclusion that no, they've gone through so much together. But I mean, like the uh, like it's still still in episode two, you get very little actual communication going on. Mm-hmm. But there's the moment that like he takes the little mm-hmm. ball off the ship that he, um, the child wants to play with and hands it to it, and like it's it's a really adorable tender moment between two things that don't talk to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, Particularly. Yeah. Well, it's it's one of those things like, you know, there's the, the different love languages, like the different ways of communicating that you care about somebody. And mm. one of those is like acts of service, uh-huh. doing something that you know will, that the other person will appreciate. And they're not all verbal. Like some people really respond well or like, like don't feel loved unless they hear like verbal things. But that's not true for everybody. And it doesn't seem to be true for these particular protagonists. So it's interesting to see some subtler indications of that relationship and those feelings. This might be a tangent, but you're saying you think they might, that the Mandalorian might question whether or not his feelings for the child are genuine. Yeah. And I don't know, like, I I wondered to what extent you can really draw a line, because when somebody bonds with a child, whether they've adopted that child or whether they've given birth to that child or whether their partner has given birth to that child, there's a whole lot of hormonal things that happen that essentially influence your, your ability to make that bond and your drive to make that bond, and the power of it is overwhelming for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And, like, I've talked to, like, we have several friends who have very young children and who have mentioned just how overwhelming and terrifyingly strong that feeling of like, I will never love anything as much as I love this person that I've made or, you know, this child that's in my life. And you can reduce that down to a bunch of hormones triggered by specific types of interactions and particular types of features we respond to, crying, big eyes and all of that but doesn't make it any less genuine, I would argue that it doesn't make it less genuine. Like, if you have the feelings, they're real feelings. Even if 
something triggered the cascade of them, if that makes sense. Yeah. The point of the hormones and um, and children is interesting. I think the reason that they might still do such an episode is if you take it away from being a strictly child relationship and a more companion. Like, I think the parallel with, like, if you started dating someone mm-hmm. and then you were dating them for, like, three years and then you found out that, like, they tricked you or lied about something fundamental originally and, like, you know the person, you have the feelings for the person, but you're also questioning mm-hmm. what started, like, if that was a lie. Right. So, like... Well, they do that in Steven Universe with Garnet. Yeah, they do. So something more like that where Ruby and Sapphire initially don't question their permafusion to because rose quartz is so affirming of it and so elated by the idea that they just go with it and don't ever really unpack it but then when they find out that she wasn't who she said she was they have to kind of come to a conclusion independently about the validity of their relationship yeah and so i I could potentially see something like that happening and i think what would come what that would end up coming down to is the way of taking care of a foundling. Like, it doesn't matter if the child influenced the strength of my conviction that I needed to save it. Fundamentally, that con- conviction's aligned with my creed. And that I'm secure in, I yeah. being the Mandalorian. And so it would ultimately lead you back to the same place. That's how you know what's in season two. It is nice to see them doing this where they're. Part of what makes it odd to see is that the story is about a parent and a child in space. Mm-hmm. And in particular, a father and child. Mm-hmm. Which is not a narrative that we see as often as we perhaps should. At least not in a healthy way. And I'm not suggesting that everything that goes on in The Mandalorian is necessarily healthy, especially to begin with. He is very bad at supervision. Yes. That they killed off the nurse droid, and that that seems like that might be a problem because that he he really needs like daycare. Yeah. Although I suppose it's hard to find daycare that like will cover assassins coming after you. Yeah. Maybe I'd... Sedaris apparently is the way to go for that. IG Eleven is pretty perfect as far as a companion, especially once the Mandalorian got past the whole anti droid bias and decided that IG Eleven was one of the good ones. As problematic as that is. Because that's essentially what happens toward the end. We don't see... We don't see him interact with any droids afterwards. So it's not clear whether he has had that problematic, like, well, IG was okay, Mm -hmm. or whether he's like, droids aren't what I thought they were. Could be, yeah. I might be assuming that he's going to continue to have this anti-droid bias, but and that might be unfair. We'll see in season two. I feel like that's a storytelling element that they played out. Maybe. It was the, he doesn't like droids, why doesn't he like droids? They killed his family. Okay, I get it. He's he's learned that not all droids are bad, so. But we'll cycle around a bit more to the droids again later, I think. Okay. So, I mean, as far as, like, it being a difficulty in storytelling of fleshing those characters out, Mm -hmm. I would say that there's two sides to that. One is, they do obviously have to lean a lot on showing rather than telling. Yes. Especially because not only that, but like the Mandalorian is an enigma to people. And so is the child. They're both enigmas. So you don't, you can't have too much of a character saying to another character, oh, well, you know, this guy is this, this, this. Mm -hmm. And it's not in his nature to explain it himself. Mm -hmm. So you sort of have to eke out little bits through that. So you do see a lot of how things come down and see a lot about how he feels about people. And can kind of put 
together between the lines based on his discussion of how he came to be a Mandalorian and like what you see in the conversations between him and the armorer that really kind of fills in the gaps on why he's decided to effectively adopt this child. I mean, they they spell it out for you in the last episode in case you hadn't put it together already that part of the creed is taking care of orphaned children and either raising them as Mandalorians or reuniting them with their family. Basically, that you're responsible, though, one way or the other. Yeah. You can kind of put that together based on previous interactions. Um, and then they finally, I guess, for the people who just want confirmation or weren't paying that close attention during the non-gunfight parts, like, <laughs> let you know, you have him now until you can find his people. You're a clan of two. Like, I don't think it gets much clearer than that. Yeah. I think there is an extent to which, e- even with... All the tricks they do with it. Like, I mean, there's the... I think it's episode three when there's the sort of weird love interest for him who wants to take his helmet off and he's like, well, no, that's that's not what I do. Where, like, it's... A little bit of that is a little bit clumsy of, like, exposition stuff there. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I, like, even with that, there are there is an extent to which they're not terribly deeply drawn. You get the impression that there is more depth to the characters than we get, but we don't... After eight episodes, you don't know that much about them still. Yeah, that's true. And we still don't know what race the child is of, like... And that's an intentional mystery on the part of, like, George Lucas and, you know, other people who've kind of curated the Star Wars universe to maintain that mystery. We don't even know what that race is called. We've only seen two others before, and they're both on the Jedi Council. And that's literally it. So, like, which I think is going to be a big part of season two, because there's not a lot to go on to reunite the child with his people. The plot of season two, as it's been set up so far, is where do you take this child? Mm -hmm. Is there somewhere to take this child? Um, If we assume that, based on the fact that all of the members of this race that we've seen are extremely strong force users, that all members of this race are force users then the odds that they were largely wiped out by Order 66 is depressingly high. Yeah. Yay, genocide. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense, actually, and I hadn't really even thought about that. It's like, well, I mean, they did have a Death Star. They only, so far as we know, used it on Alderaan before it got blown up, but it's possible there were testing periods, and I'm sure that if they did test super weapons like that or uh, precursors or something, they would be targeting places like wherever Yoda came from. So, And speaking of that species, I think I have a possible theory as to why it's so hard to find them. I think they are are probably only a handful left. If they're all Jedi, then they wouldn't procreate. Mm. Because Jedi don't believe in procreating. So and we know they're very they're an ascetic order. And there there is a history, like in this country, of like Anabaptist groups and things like that, um, where they were very egalitarian societies and very egalitarian churches, but they did not believe in having children, they did not believe in having sex, and they did not believe in baptizing infants into their church, and they died out because the only way you got new members was if other people, like, joined as adults. Yeah. And if you're not passing on your belief system to the next generation, you can't really pass it on effectively enough to maintain that when you are also kind of insular, which they were. Yeah. So you just end up basically having a commune of people that live until they die and then they're gone. 
it's interesting talking about like procreating. Jedi recruit children, not adults. Right. The majority of the time. If you recruit an adult, apparently you get Darth Vader. That's just how it goes. Or Luke. Or Luke. But he had sort of a modified, reformed training process. And he also did did have a few moments where like he, he, he had some temptations in there. Yeah, well in the now no longer canon expanded universe, he does go dark for a while and then comes back. But uh. adults are too complicated, they're too much baggage. So that doesn't leave the leave room for, for example, a race to procreate before becoming Jedi. Right. But it's interesting with the child and the, the race that Yoda's from, if we assume that aside from the fact that they have too much baggage mm-hmm. by the time they're older, like there seems to be an impression that it's easier to learn the ways of the Force as a child. Yeah. So if this race has an extended childhood period mm. of, say, the lifespan of a human. Yeah then it would make sense that they were able to get that much more mastery over the Force. That makes sense. Because if a if you saw a 50-year-old Jedi, mm-hmm. like a human Jedi, lift up a mud horn, mm-hmm. it would be impressive. It wouldn't be outstanding. Right. It's because this 50-year-old Jedi looks like a two-year-old mm-hmm. that we're like, oh my god! And that does make a lot of sense because an adult has so much to unlearn about how the world works in the ways that the way we think the world works conflicts with what you can do with the force, like defying gravity and things like that. It reminds me of in, I think it was middle or high school and I was taking extracurricular philosophy. We were reading a book called Sophie's World, I think. Anyway, it's a really cool book that's also essentially an introduction to philosophy, and one of the early points made in it is that if somebody suddenly started floating in a room with, like, a toddler and an adult, the toddler wouldn't be shocked or alarmed because they still don't really know what is possible and what's not, what's unexpected and what's expected. Yeah. And so, but it would freak out and terrify the adult. It would probably just amuse and delight the child. And I think there is something to that with what you're saying about a child who's going to be a child and be learning about the world and dependent on other people to take care of the survival aspects of living in the world is probably going to have an easier time if they're trying to master the force because they're not constrained by dogmatic ideas of reality, essentially. Yeah. Which I guess is the other thing with the like one of the advantages to their protagonist choices for the storytelling side of things is that they do have a guy for whom it would at first appear it would be difficult for him to be more cynical. Mm-hmm. He he sort of has seen the world and has seen war and all this jazz. As a survivor of a gen of an of a genocide, yeah. like. And then you have this child who enjoys playing with shiny bits of metal. Mm-hmm. Yay. And seems pretty happy in moments when his life is not currently being threatened. And seems very, I don't know, has a lot of pro-social tendencies. Like, we keep seeing him trying to heal people. Yeah. He can't necessarily verbalize that that's what he's trying to do. But in the world, what he seems to want to do is play with things and be nurturing. Yeah. And, like, that's very sweet. Like, all of the things that we see him do are very sweet things. It's the stay on the ship. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, I guess you're coming with me. Yeah. That side of things. But then I would be alone. (laughs) I want to come with you. I I love you. You you didn't let me get experimented on further. That was great. One of the best things that's ever happened to me. I mean, well, we don't know about the 50 years that led up to this point. Yeah. That's one thing I'm looking forward to in season two is finding out what 
like, how did this child end up in a bandit camp on a random desert planet? Yeah. It's all very well for there to be a bounty out for. Were those people taking care of the child? Were they also bad in terms of their intentions? Who knows? We don't get given a lot of information about the group, except they're bad. But they didn't seem to have hurt the child in any way. No. The child... You don't know how long the child has been there. You don't. You don't know how long he's been there. He doesn't... He seems to be in good health and good spirits, which leads me to believe they're not maltreating him in any way. So, I don't know. Anyway. Was there anything else you wanted to say about the protagonists and the storytelling side of things with that? Yeah. One other thing I I do want to say on, like, it's very clear that a big... Because the Mandalorian's not going to tell you about you know, how he got to where he is and why he has the biases he has. Like, they do employ a lot of flashback and other people talking about him in order to give you a sense of who he is and what he has experienced before this. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense for a very taciturn character. And I think you see that a lot in, like, Westerns and in, like, Firefly and things like that. Anything where there is a kind of taciturn protagonist who's usually male. I think that's a. Those are some pretty time honored, established ways of getting around that. Yeah, it's interesting. More interesting to me that they managed to tell you so much about the child's character and interiority without even those things. Like it's literally just through his cooing and body language and things like that. I mean, the thing is that we know a lot about who the child is. We don't know anything about who the child was. That's true. So which. The stuff that we find out in the flashbacks is all about who the Mandalorian was and how he got to where he is, which is the information that we're entirely lacking for the child. That's true. That is that is true. We don't get as much of a... I guess we get some sense of his character, but honestly, I don't know that we do have that much of a sense of his character beyond his affection for the child and adherence to the creed, like, of the Mandalorian. We don't necessarily know, because... He was a bounty hunter, so he must have somewhat gray moral codes and some flexibility in terms of what he considers to be, you know, a an ethical thing to do. We're back to... Uh, moral, ethical, legal. Always yeah. circles back to moral, ethical, legal. Well, when you have a, a lone protagonist wandering through a situation, apparently. Yeah, um, and he, we know he doesn't care about what's legal, but he does care about what's ethical and yeah. what is moral... I mean, you see a few big decisions that tell you a lot about who he is. Mm-hmm. Obviously, going back for the child. If there's the point in the book that the detective should stop mm-hmm. investigating, that's the point at which the bounty hunter should go, wow, look, I got all this money, mm-hmm. and move on. All this Beskar, in this case. Mm-hmm. Which is what the bounty hunter guy who gave him the assignment is like, because he seems concerned about it and is asking these inappropriate questions. And he's like, go get yourself a Camtono of Spice! Have a good time. Just forget about this for about everything for a few yeah. days and move on to the next bounty. Like he's like, but I have this pesky code. Yeah, and you see that with the episode on the prison ship, and for some reason with Bill Burr. Why is he there? I don't understand. But when he's had this group of people who have very much lured him into a trap and tried yeah. to kill him, if he were to systematically kill all of those people, I think as an audience we wouldn't turn against him for it. It might seem brutal, mm-hmm. but it would be okay. As an audience, he's set up as a bounty hunter who you know has to be ruthless in a lot of ways, and so I don't think it would feel out of character. Yeah. Hello, Shadow. Or like a decision that wouldn't make sense for the character. 
We'd like to welcome Shadow to the podcast. He's going to meow for a while and probably, uh, yep, there we go, shake his collar around. I mean, like, the first scene that we see of him is him killing some people and taking in a bounty who's pleading for his life. Like, mm-hmm. But the fact that he doesn't kill any of them. Yeah. I mean, he kind of kills two of them, I guess. Like, the uh, the guy that they break out and the guy who gives him the assignment, like, who put, puts the team together. I know. I feel like calling down the uh, X-Wings on them is, is tantamount to killing them, but he doesn't actually kill them. Yeah, I think that's more of a deflecting the weapon they pointed at him back at them. Like, you... Because they were setting him up to be taken or killed by the right. rebellion. And as I say... By like, the New Republic. I don't... As an audience, we don't turn against him for that. Yeah. Um, I think that that, that X aspect is, I don't know, more... more what we might expect from the character. Yeah. Um, whereas there's that, like, oh, there's the... His reaction to the rest of the team is much more forgiving and clearly to some sort of code. Like, he, he could have just killed them and not gone back to the ship at any point. Mm-hmm. That was within his ability. So I feel like we've talked quite a lot about protagonists. Yeah, I think so. So the next thing that I've got on our agenda is... Um, I'm not sure how much of it's going to be a discussion and how much of it is just kind of calling something out. Yeah. Which is that... The show, particularly in the early parts of the like the first few episodes, does seem to be very heavily influenced by sort of video game storytelling. Yeah, um, I agree. the The first episode is, I think, two fetch quests. Oh yeah. So I, I don't know to what extent our listeners play video games, but the you, you go to someone and they say, "Ah, protagonist, go and get me this thing, and I will give you reward." And he goes and gets thing and comes back and is given a reward. And then on top of that, he's in the position where he takes his reward and goes down to the armory and buys himself a new piece of gear mm-hmm. with a nice bit of foreshadowing that, like, you can come back and get more gear and build up a full suit over time. Yeah. And he really, like, takes on a heavy quest early and goes and, like, sort of, what's the term? Grinds. Yeah, he, he he does some grinding and, like, gets the overpowered armor far too early on in the game and, like, really just, like, throws off the whole difficulty setting. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And it's very much, especially with the armorer, with the Mandalorian, it's like, and this is your home area, and this is your clan leader, and this is essentially a new market or new vendor that you have un- to unlocked because you've reached an appropriate level and, you know, she'll recognize you as a legitimate customer. The blacksmith is occasionally a bit of an um, exposition fairy. She's pretty awesome, though. She is. And I, I'm glad that in the final episode they do give her some time of just being like, and then she gets attacked. Why? We we want to show her be badass. I'm sorry, that's it. Yeah. Like, so you don't get to be in this prime position in the hierarchy of the Mandalorians where you're so highly respected and, you know, trusted with the super important you know, treasure of your people, which is the the metal, without knowing how to use that stuff and be very effective on your in your own right. So, I mean, every moment that we see her, her forge is blazing, and she mm-hmm. has a hammer in her hand. Mm-hmm. If you're swinging a hammer at steel all day, then um, you're gonna have some guns. Not the phrase I was going for, but I'm glad you found something to express the tone. Uh, with the protagonists as they are, it's a very episodic story. Like, each episode does have its own individual story, and there's very little in way of an overarching plot. The overarching plot is really mostly in the first two episodes of 
man goes, gets baby, brings baby back, decides should keep baby, is chased. Six episodes later, kills people chasing him. Yeah. And that plot, too, is very reminiscent of video game plots. Because there are definitely video games where you can, you get a quest, and you don't have all the information, and you make, and you fulfill the quest and you realize you're the asshole and you're like well shit i'm the asshole here and you have a choice between not my problem and okay let me just bring down everything on myself in a, in the effort to not be the asshole and then you can have that major storyline you know in skyrim you can decide to choose a side in a war and each side has their own presumably somewhat compelling reason except that uh... i ne- and I never joined the Stormcloaks because they're racist bastards. Yeah, the, but the the the, uh, the the two sides of that war are keep Britain white and hegemony. I don't know. Yes, it, it's imperial outpost or xenophobia. Okay. Like, yes, like really. so you have a choice between colonialism and xenophobia. But yeah, like there are a lot of video games where you have to make that big decision, and your options are set afterward by that choice. You know, you have certain characters you can interact with, you have certain dialogue options, there are places you can and cannot go without being attacked, etc. Yeah. Like, different video games do that. And that comes up, too, um, is lampshaded a bit when he's keeping company with the rebel uh, shock trooper, who is like, I'm not going over there. Like, they're going to kill me immediately because they're ex-Imperials and I'm, you know, an ex-shock trooper on the other side. So... You know, it's very much that kind of thing of, like, he's chosen to take the child back, so he's kicked out of the Bounty Hunters Guild, he's not safe to go to a lot of areas he normally would go to, a lot of his allies also can't go to the places, etc., so. Yeah, and I think the other thing is, like, there's a lot of the narrative that does sort of come out as being very side questy. Mm-hmm. It's like he's going off to do this so that he can, you know, complete this part of the task and things. He's got to go yeah. and get some money, so he's going to go and yeah. take down this bounty with this oik first time bounty hunter. And hilarity ensues. Right, yeah. In fact, like all of those middle episodes are exactly that kind of side quest. It's like the... going and meeting Quill Quill and mm-hmm. helping him out. Like I need to fix my ship. Yeah. Like oh no, this thing happened, and now I have to go and get parts. So in order to get parts, I have to go and get money. In order to get money, I have to do this small side quest helping out these villagers or whatever. And it's just like, so it keeps circling back and in a, a very video game-esque way. The little side quests and errands. But I think that, like, I mean, I think people could take this as us shitting on it. Oh no, totally um, not. It's yeah. It's... I, I also enjoy video game stories, and we can have a few episodes talking about video games. Apparently, we have plenty to say about Skyrim. So, yeah. well, the it's a clever way of t- of showing you an open world, yeah. And that's I think why we're getting that in the Mandalorian because they're really trying to tell you a little bit more about the wider expanded universe, you know. And a big part of how video games do that is by giving you side quests in every new town you go to and with random people so that you learn about some of the political stuff going on, some of the historical things that have happened to set things up in certain ways, some of the ecological stuff or whatever. So like it's part of giving you those details in a way that doesn't feel too boring or exposition heavy. Yeah. And I think that's the same reason that's employed in this show because the Star Wars universe is huge. Yeah. And I think season two is very much going to be set up to show you more of the world. We got to see Tatooine in this season. I'm calling it now that season two, they're going to show us Dagobah again. Mm. 
I think there's going to be some reason to go and investigate that because it's the I last think it place we sense. knew someone of the race. Exactly. Was there. Yeah, I think that would be a natural place to start because you start by going, does anyone at all have any idea what of anyone else of this race? And like at some point, someone's be like, well, there was Master Yoda of the Jedi Council. I know he retired to Dagobah. Like <laughs> Mark Hamill has hinted that I I don't know if this was a reference to the Rise of Skywalker because we haven't seen it. But Mark Hamill has hinted that, like, they're not done with him yet. Mm. I wonder whether we're going to see, like, a post-Return of the Jedi Luke appearance. Mm. Where he's like, I suppose that would he would know too much for to keep the mystery alive. Not necessarily. He doesn't know where Master Yoda's from. He right. just knows that he found him in Dagobah. But, but that's put, not where he's from. They're keeping so much mystery around what the Force is mm-hmm. for the Mandalorian, like, one person is like, oh yeah, I heard about space wizards once. Yeah, there are legends about this. Yeah. Which is interesting to me, like, I kind of want to know what, like, the mass media was after mm-hmm. the Empire fell, because, like, the Empire fell across the galaxy, so we know there was communication out there, mm-hmm. but um, was there not, like, oh yeah, these, again, space wizards did a large part of it? Well, no, I don't, I'm, it doesn't surprise me that the Jedi aren't a part of the narrative of how the Rebels triumphed over the Empire because it was Luke in an X-Wing who blew up the Death Star with a proton torpedo. It was not obvious magic, obvious force using. Yeah. There was the battle with Obi-Wan and Darth Vader, and Darth Vader was a force user, and and the Emperor was a force user, but it's not super clear how widely known that was because when you think about it Han Solo also was super skeptical about the force and like called it mumbo jumbo and didn't believe in any of it and things even though he had been in the Imperial Academy at one point so it's like even the Imperial grunts let alone the vast people who were just kind of vaguely under their thumb would not necessarily know that the force was actually a real thing and not just myths yeah yeah, and I guess, like, all of the fights to where the Force is most visibly used tend to be one-on-one situations. It's not like there's a load of stormtroopers coming out and going, oh, you know, he, he threw a brick at me with his mind. Also, if a stormtrooper came out with that, he's like, yeah, he hit you in the head, clearly. Well, and it wouldn't surprise me if a part of that was intentional on the part of both the Jedi Order and the Sith, because when you shroud something in mystery, like, it... When it does come up, it's more intimidating and more awe-inspiring and, like, seems more powerful. And it is pretty powerful, but still, you know what I mean? If we're talking about a point when Jedi and Sith actually have orders rather than one or two people hanging around. Mm -hmm. I suppose the Sith is usually one or two people, even when there's more of them in the universe. Mm -hmm. Um, But, uh, like, if we look at the prequel trilogy, like, there's there's not a huge amount of hiding the Force. Like, the Jedi Academy is a much bigger thing. Mm-hmm. Um, they seem to have more influence on the Senate, if not a huge amount, mm-hmm. at least visibly. And they're out on battlefields all over the place. Mm-hmm. So they are much more out there. Which, mm-hmm. so. no, and, seem... and when they turn up on Naboo, like, they're known as Jedi and respected as such. They seem more like the Catholic Church to me, though. Like, they're respected as, like, a moral authority, and people will enlist them to be, like, mediators and stuff. And okay. respect them as people who are scholars and impartial observers. Okay, that's fair. But I don't know that people necessarily know the ins and outs of what it means to be a Jedi and what abilities they might have and what have you. Like, people might have heard about it, but that if they didn't know any, they might not really know that much about it. 
Yeah, which I guess helps if people don't know Jedi mind tricks are a thing. They're not shielding themselves against them and things. But we did kind of go off on a tangent about Jedi and stuff. We were supposed to be talking about video games and the influence of video game storytelling on the Mandalorian. But I do, I do think we covered that pretty yes. well. Yes, I, I think we then went off on an interesting tangent that may or may not make the final cut. Probably should, but we'll see how long this ends up being. So we talked a bit about the storytelling elements. I wanted to go into talking about some of the main themes that I think are handled in an interesting way. Sort of the first thing I wanted to go for with that, I mean, and we sort of signaled this a little bit with our conversation about silent protagonists and what you know about them, but just sort of identity in general. Mm -hmm. Um, And that can be a fairly wide-ranging topic throughout because Mm -hmm. there's a lot that they do with who someone is and who someone is expected to be. Did you want to lead off on any of this, or are you waiting for me to say more? Um, you go ahead. Oh, thanks. So, I mean, obviously the Mandalorian is sort of shrouded in who he is. And in metal, pretty literally. Sorry. (sighs) (laughs) But you get a lot of, a lot more about the people that he meets, and sort of the assumption that first goes there. And I think that you get that to an extent with, like, what he expects from Quill and Cara Dune, which is the shock trooper's name, mm. having looked that up. But I think it's most evident, I think this conversation is probably going to go smoothest if we talk about, um, with the robot. IG-11? In- yeah, um, which I- I'm pretty sure they called him IG because calling him OP would have been two on the nose. <laughs> um and I mean, you see a little bit of it, like with Zero, the robot with the in the prison ship episode. Mm-hmm. Um, you sort of see some of his assumptions of what a robot is, mm-hmm. um, and with Zero, that's kind of borne out. When it gets to the final couple of episodes, it maybe gets a little bit heavy-handed with it, with the remaking of IG to be a nurse instead of a hunter. Yeah. And sort of there's the these questions of what is someone compared to what you expect them to be? Yeah. Which I think is done very well with like IG turns up in nurse mode somewhere mm-hmm. and someone says, oh, it's a hunter. And he's like, no, I'm a nurse. It's like, that model's normally a hunter. And this one isn't. <laughs> uh, yeah. But then also a question of what is fundamental. Yeah. And unchangeable because you do very much get the Mandalorian's point of view that... You know, you, you, you can tell me that this robot's been entirely reprogrammed. I don't trust it because it's a robot. It's a killing. It was designed as a killing machine. That must be what it is. Right. Are you going to weigh in with anything at some point or am I just going to keep rambling? I, it sounded like you still had thoughts to complete. I'm sure I do, but I'm not sure what I was going <laughs> to. Hmm. It's, I think that like his reaction to robots is, well, that's not even a deep comment, um, his reaction to robots and such is fairly clearly like intended to be some sort of signalism of racism to a degree. As a, I had this really bad experience with robots, you know, destroying my entire community and my parents. And now I feel that way about all of them. Yeah. But it's interesting that he has this, and I mean, you, you mentioned earlier that uh, there's the risk that his response to IG might be, a, well, that that one robot is, is one of the good robots. Mm-hmm. All the other robots are still bad. Or it could be that he takes a wider view of things of challenging his own beliefs that he's built up there. It's interesting that he has developed this belief and is so, finds it so difficult to believe that the robot can change or that people can change in general by the looks of it, given that he was effectively remade himself. Remade how? Well, in that he was being raised in a family that presumably had their own beliefs and creed and 
whatnot. That's true. And I do wonder about that, especially because they show his parents and him both in these very similar, like, red robes and stuff. That look like they could be ritualistic or... Yeah. Or could just be a uniform down at the Kmart. But it implies a particular type of, like, conformity of, like, a structure of, of a social group, maybe a religious group, but definitely seems somewhat, like, sectarian in a way, you know? So, yeah, that is interesting that he then so fully assumes the creative, the Mandalorian, and, you know, just goes entirely into that. I mean, if you're right and that it was sort of a sectarian thing, then the strict beliefs of the way might have mm-hmm. felt sort of familiar and comforting to him. That's true. Um, That's true. That It might be, like, a lot of the pagan people that I know who are very interested in like Western ceremonialist tradition, a lot of them were raised Catholic. And I do think that is a big part of that is because that kind of ritual structure feels powerful in a similar way. I wonder how many of our listeners know anything about Western ceremonialism. Well, if you can Google it, but it does draw a lot of influence from other very like structured and ceremonialized um, religious beliefs like Judeo-Christian traditions and Egyptian traditions. But. Yeah. I mean, at the same time, obviously, it's hard not to acknowledge that he didn't exactly have a lot else he could take. His A large chunk of his civilization seems to have been wiped out and he was taken in by a Mandalorian. So I, I guess right. at that point, you become a Mandalorian, your family's dead. So it's not like, like if your choice, if the Mandalorian's choice is you can raise this child or you can take them back to their family. Yeah. They don't really have a choice. Or their their people. Right. There's not a whole lot there. Right. And he's so young, like, it's unlikely that he had already been, like, fully, fully indoctrinated in, like, the full life course of traditions and experiences that you would go through and really absorb to be a member of whatever group he was in, whatever culture he was being raised in. But it is such a change for him. Mm Mm-hmm. I think that's part of just the way people think about machines. You know, you think about a machine as this thing that is what you've made it to be, that it is very static in that way. Um, And he, it seemed to me a really a fundamental lack of understanding that programming and like hardware and software are different. Yeah. And that although both can be modified, it's just harder. Well, they're just different things to change. But you can change either of them. And especially if you're thinking about the kind of incredibly complicated software that would be the that would be the foundation of a sentient robot, you know, that would be an artificial intelligence and the machine learning involved in that. Like I don't think a whole lot of people necessarily I'm not even sure. I can like totally fully wrap my head around it. It's yeah. like trying to think about how a brain thinks. Like, how do our neurons, which are little sparking fat balls, like how do those store memories and thoughts and transmit impulses to our bodies? Like, it's very hard to like really get how that works. And yeah. so I don't necessarily blame someone for being like, oh, but it's a thing that people programmed to do a certain thing. And it's a you know, things in a row, and that's what it is. Yeah. And, you know, how are you telling me that it's something totally different now? The level of ignorance on certain things within this galaxy is kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it might be, like, there's been a shift over the last 400 years. Like, the university used to be the one place you went to go to learn everything. Um, and you would learn most knowledge. And now you go and you do a single discipline because there's too much knowledge in any one discipline to learn three of them. Obviously, someone is, people have done more than one 
degree. But there's so much more knowledge to know now than there was 400 years ago. Yeah. That you can imagine in this society that is, while a long, long time ago and not Mm -hmm. in the future, is spanning planets there there surely is so much to know and there's a point at which you're like well i'm either going to go to bounty hunter school or robotic school Mm -hmm. Uh, i'm not doing both so yeah i know how to kill things i don't know how robots work getting back to the central topic of identity yes (laughs) i feel like a big part of what we're approaching with this conversation is this analogy with trans identity in ig11 and the change between the bounty hunting robot and the nursing robot and that people see it as one thing, but it's actually something else. And really, the only person who can tell you that is IG-11 and Quirrell, who enabled that transition. Interesting. I hadn't thought of it in that way. Really? I guess because it's the inside that's changing rather than the outside. Mm-hmm. Quirrell gave IG dysphoria. I'm not sure. Well, th- it, that would place... Quirrell in this, like, godlike position as far as IG-11, as far as IG-11's, like, identity. So this, like, outside influence who made him this way, made it this way. But it's also something that was imposed, not something that was internally desired from the beginning, so it wasn't... But as far as the robot's current experience, it is, like, it's what he knows to be true of himself. I see where you're going with it. I'm not sure that is... Something that works within the series as a whole? I don't think that it I don't think that it necessarily works completely, but I think it's worth looking at. I think for that to work out as a part of the narrative as a commentary on culture in any way, you would have to have IG turn up be assumed to be a hunter robot, but have been a nurse robot from the start. I don't think it's necessarily trying to do that. But I do no. think it's useful as something like as a, a like for the vignette of the questioning of the identity, the clarification of the identity, and the statement that just because you think that this is what I am right. doesn't mean that that's what I am. Within that, 30... I get to tell you what I am and who I am. Yes, within that thirty-second scene mm-hmm. taken out of context, I agree with you. Yeah, it's you have a category in mind that means this one thing, and you think I'm in that category. But I get to decide that, not yeah. you. And so I think that works. Like I said, I don't think you can extend it through the entire cycle of, of yeah. IG-11 or the whole universe or whatever. But just in that moment, I think it's a good moment for that. Another interesting way that like identity is handled in The Mandalorian is all the mystery and assumptions around what a Mandalorian is that we keep seeing every time The Mandalorian goes anywhere or interacts with anyone. People know that they don't remove their helmets and constantly ask him about it. People constantly try to take it off of him without his permission in like a challenging way. Or even in a friendly or romantic way. Right. But like there's like a lot of people who seem to struggle with being confronted with a personal boundary held by somebody that is not a boundary they have. It's like, it reminds me of some of the really shitty and ugly things that happen with, like, women who wear hijab and things like that. And it's like, people want to know, like, why do you do this? Do you ever take it off? And, like, all of these things. And they assume it's oppressive. It's not for everybody. But it's like, 
So there are all there are a bunch of things that attempt to kind of control that choice around the world. Yeah. Both institutionally in terms of like laws and ordinances and stuff and socially in terms of people being shitty and it's a lack of respect or a lack of being able to just let it go because it's different than what you do. Yeah. And I think that goes hand in hand with the way that people keep assuming that a Mandalorian is something other than what it is. People keep yeah. thinking it's a race. People think it's a, you know, a place of origin. Like you're a Mandalorian if you're from Mandalore. You're a Mandalorian if you're of the race of people from Mandalore. It's a religion. It's, you know, a this, a that. And he's like, it's a creed, which means this is something you choose to follow, that you adopt and that you keep as a way of life. One of the interesting things, I think, is that one of the things people question is, what do you look like under that helmet? Right. Um, and I know that there was some fan theory speculations that he was going to be, like, horribly scarred under there, or might be an alien, or, like, might, yeah. A non-human, of a non-human yeah. race. Right. But you do all see, aliens. you see a surprisingly large number of Mandalorians, mm -hmm. which is another part of their identity. There's this whole thing about like only one of them goes out of time, mm -hmm. unless it's a big deal, in which case we all go out and then we have to relocate. And blah, blah, blah. But every one of the Mandalorians that we see seems thoroughly humanoid. Mm -hmm. There's no, is it Twi'lex that have the mm -hmm. big long things like that that doesn't fit underneath any of the mandalorian helmets that we see yeah um i forget what those are called they do have a name you you see child mandalorians with with helmets on and everything mm -hmm. but you don't see like that there's no jawa mandalorians um <laughs> they're called leku leku twi'lek is something else i think no twi'lek is the species leku oh. are the appendages from their skulls. I didn't even know there was a name. Um, you have outnerded me, thank you. I knew there was a name. I couldn't remember what the name was. Charlotte has read the extended universe books. So Not she all of them. Me from the off. Not all of them. That's like I don't even know how many books that is. It's a lot though. You have read some of them. That makes sense. They're Leku. Okay. Yeah. I see anyway. That. Anyway. Sorry. Um, the Mandalorian Creed seems accepting in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. and to be very good in a lot of ways. So I hope that in season two we see a non-humanoid Mandalorian. Mm -hmm. Because if their creed is like, you must help people and you must like save foundlings and you know, that th this is the way and stuff. And then this is the way is also forearms. It's not going to work with our uniform. I'm sorry. You've got a weird head thing going on. I don't think... That helmet... Uh, Armour, can you make a helmet for that? No, no, see, that's not going to work. I'm sorry. This is the way. Uh <laughs> Like, what would a helmet for the child look like? Is it super, super wide to accommodate the ears, or is it shaped around the ears? So... How does that work? Just pushes them down. A giant, like the Juggernaut, where it just... You know the Juggernaut helmet? Yeah. And just the huge one just goes from shoulder to shoulder all the way around. No, it pushes the ears all the way down, and then when it takes the helmet off, it sort of whips its hair around <laughs> in a big, like, taking the motorbike helmet off sort of way. Yeah, except it's the, except it's the ears and they sort of flap backwards and forwards a little bit. Mm. It's very cute. Um, mm. Season two, it's coming. Okay. Because the little Mandalorians had helmets. Yeah. So. But presumably not big ears. That's yeah. that's what really you know I was too weak for training and and also the ears won't fit in the helmet. So yeah, this has gone on to a silly tangent. I'm sorry. 
So. Do we have anything more to say about identity? I can see some parallels between the depiction of the Mandalorian as a creed that's often mistaken for a religion and ethnicity and a like geographic origin and all of these things and like also just the misconceptions and stereotypes about them as being an interesting parallel to like Judaism in our culture because mm. of the way also with the way that Jewish populations have had to flee different places when their surroundings become hostile to their way of life you know, as the Mandalorian covert has to do, but also that like people draw these assumptions based on based on just the fact that these people keep to themselves and they have their own traditions and they have their own ways of dressing in some particular cases and things like that. But also that there are people who do not necessarily follow follow Judaism as a religion, but do identify as Jewish in terms of their family origin uh, or their ancestral lineage. And people like people who are like of Sephardic or Ashkenazic. Ashkenazi lineage, but may not follow the religion, people who follow the religion who may not be of the lineage and so on and so yeah. forth. Like there are so many different ways to identify as being a part of that group. And having the covert um, being a diaspora. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also being composed of people who've in some cases been brought in or who have maybe come together from other areas that they've had to leave. Yeah. I don't want to say too much about it because I'm not Jewish, but um, again, having interned at a Jewish organization and, you know, been in, involved in like interfaith, inter- yeah. interfaith spaces throughout different levels of my college and graduate careers. Like, you know, it's just interesting because I have, you know, heard a lot of people talk about the different ways of being yeah. in that group. So Yeah, and it is interesting that um, like even, I'm sure the character has a name, but he's just going to be Carl Weathers to me. <laughs> I'm assuming that Carl Weathers was just playing himself in space. Like, even he, who seems to know the Mandalorian very well, has no understanding of what a Mandalorian is. Yeah. Just that sort of... He only really sees the Mandalorian as a purpose and not as a person. As a tool, really. I think he sees him as an instrument. Yeah. And when the Mandalorian starts trying to express emotion, he's like, Ah, come on, Mando. Let's have a drink. Yeah. You seem to be having some pesky ethical problems. I, I recommend drugs. <laughs> yeah, that's that's his take on things. Um, like, that's literally his reaction. Like, have you tried getting really high for several days? I tell you, I had ethics once. It really worked for me. I clear you right up. Who is the Mandalorian? Is it the guy in the suit of armor, or is it the child? At this point, you could argue either, because now they're a clan of two, which means that the child is a Mandalorian, but he doesn't have a helmet or anything, so it's kind of, I don't know. Would he he actually be recognized as one? Not by other people, certainly. But it's not other people's perceptions that matter. That's true. Who is the title character, I guess, is really the question. Who's the show about? The TV show should actually be called Mandalorians. Mm. The whole Lone Ranger thing was just like... I mean, even the Lone Ranger show wasn't just about the Lone Ranger. <laughs> Which might just be a commentary on America right there. We're out here all by ourselves. It's the, it's the whole Thoreau thing. Yep. Emerson. Gonna go out and be on our own, near to other people who bring us food and do our laundry. Yes. Yes, exactly. I don't know, that... I don't know if it's as bad other places, but America is really bad. Like, the United States is really bad about misrepresenting, like, historical figures or just people in general as being independent and doing things by themselves and, like, 
completely not acknowledging all of the other people who are really necessary for those people to do whatever it is that they're being praised for. I feel like it's kind of a problem everywhere, and I think a part of it in the history books is sort of like an attempt to simplify things. If one person did it, it's much easier to learn about it as an event. Mm-hmm. But I think that America might be particularly bad about the suggestion that, like, one person can do anything. Well, it's one of the things, like, we discussed it again in uh, the community partnerships specialization for the MSW program that I did. That kind of focus in our history is intentional in a way that makes it more difficult for people to imagine challenging the status quo. And because you're it's because instead of representing all of these major class struggles and, you know, progressive movements as movements and as community efforts, it makes it feel more out of reach for the everyday person to get involved in it. People are looking at, you know, the civil rights movement and thinking, well, I'm no Martin Luther King. I'm no, you know John Lewis. Yeah, but everyone's basically like, well, I'm no Martin Luther King, I'm no Mahatma Gandhi, you know, I'm no Malcolm X, whatever. And because they don't feel like they have the personal power and, like, charisma to lead a movement like that, they don't see what their place in a movement like that is. And, of course, the whole way that those things work is because there's a lot of people involved doing whatever they can. Uh, During the Montgomery bus boycott, that boycott wouldn't have had the staying power it needed to make the impact that it did without all of the, like, the wealthier black families lending their cars to the cause, without the Um, families that employed a lot of domestic workers giving their domestic workers rides and supporting the cause and things like that. But people don't hear about those parts and they don't realize, oh, I can give people rides. Oh, I can bring food. Oh, I can make calls. Which is kind of like, and with the conversation about Mandalorian and the hard-boiled and the mystery and and the hard-boiled and the Western stuff is kind of what we're talking about. It's like, ah, the Mandalorian. Mm -hmm. And all the Mandalorian's friends and co-workers <laughs> and support system who, you know, get him out of the binds that he gets himself stuck in. Yeah. And, and you know, the entire Mandalorian community. community that, like, literally come and, like, get his ass out of the fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The armorer who literally gives him exactly the right gear right before that battle, you mm-hmm. know? <laughs> you know what? You should take this jetpack. For no reason. Plot. Don't worry about it. <laughs> It won't listen to you until you really master it, but really, if you really need it, it'll be fine. <laughs> Have you used these particular weapons? Not really? Or <laughs> Well, here. Oh, this happens to be exactly the time I need these. Maybe he just finds excuses to use the cool things he's just been given. I mean, you know what? That's valid, because I think we all do that. It's like you get something cool and you just bust it out at the earliest, most flimsy opportunity. Because the, like, little bullet things that track people like uh-huh. he uh he does use very soon afterwards but he uses them because he's surrounded by like five people uh-huh. and there are multiple times in the show where he's surrounded by like five people and he just like kills them anyway he yeah. doesn't actually need to use those things they're just kind of fun uh-huh. um no i i support him doing that like he got a new toy and he's like oh cool this is the perfect opportunity to check this out just as like a last passing moment of identity mm-hmm. i wanted just to mention like there's a re- weird throwaway line where it's refer- um, when Moss Gideon turns up, mm-hmm. where it's mentioned that Cara Dune is from Alderaan. Mm. Yeah. I-, I almost missed it. Yeah. I, blinked, I-, I did catch that, and that was interesting. And that was a threat. I mean, that was very clearly a threat. Yeah. Um, and just a reminder of a horrifically tragic experience 
that was cruel and very intentional. It was a really interesting way to do a lot of characterization in a single sentence because she's been set up as really fucking hating the Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get some note that like she was a shock trooper and a lot of people died fighting the Empire and that was mm-hmm. a part of it. And she's sort of hiding out afterwards mm-hmm. to not be part of that. But when you... I mean, this is, what, five to ten years after Return of the Jedi? Mm-hmm. Which means that it's six to eleven years after Alderaan's destroyed. That's that's still a pretty fresh wound. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, in, in that moment, it tells you everything you need to know about why she is who she is. Mm-hmm. So I just thought that was interesting. Sure. It also tells you a lot about who Moff Gideon is. Yes. That he is somebody who is completely ruthless and cruel with a purpose yeah and not hesitate and does not hesitate or shy away from the atrocities that have been committed by his side yeah well talking about his side Mm -hmm. shall we move on to my last bullet point which is empire yep go on then so one of the things that we were talking about right after we finished watching the mandalorian and while we're watching it is it's pretty it's pretty widely acknowledged that the empire is definitely taking a lot of inspiration from Nazi Germany and other fascist dictatorships in the past of this world. Yeah. I mean, I just want to put in here like I think that the first point we had this conversation was after there's the scene between the Mandalorian and the Imperial guy Werner Herzog's character. The client. The client. The client. That's the one. The client, yes, that's much easier to say. Um, where the client is espousing, like, the Empire is like, why do you hate it? Mm-hmm. In a sort of propagandary, like, only the good parts sort mm-hmm. of thing. Um, of, like, you know, everything gets better under the Empire. Like, you know, trade, quality of life, it's all great. Um, and you turned to me and said, you know what the problem is with the Empire, right? And I'm like, I mean, I do, but I'm not sure I can articulate it. And you, you were talking about the extended universe books that really clarify it. Yeah, the Thrawn trilogy by Timothy Zahn really, to me, hammers home why the Empire is bad. And the reason the Empire is bad is because they are all centered on conformity as a way of like conformity in the service of efficiency. And conformity in the Empire means human supremacy. It means we structure everything for the convenience and the elevation of human beings above other sentient races in the galaxy. And it goes beyond even just humans. I mean, the stormtrooper specs, like the requirements to be a stormtrooper, there's like all these height requirements and all of this stuff. And they're very centered on everything being the same to minimize friction in the system. And when you have a whole bunch of non-human sentient races that have evolved under very different circumstances, have millions of years of different history and culture, those are all going to be disruptions to any sort of attempt at a one-size-fits-all system. And in the Throne Trilogy, you see a case of like non-human exceptionalism that I think is a Really nice parallel. I haven't read it in years, but I remember it being, a you know, in retrospect. Well, Timothy Zahn is actively rewriting it to re-canonize it at the moment. So. Right. But, like, from my memory of it, it's basically this non-human alien. I forget what race 
Thrawn is, but basically they are humanoid but blue with red eyes, and he winds up being able to rise in the ranks of the military partially because, well, mainly because he's exceedingly competent. Like, he is a brilliant person, strategist, tactician, etc. He's an excellent military commander, but also his military prowess is recognized by Darth Vader, who is able to kind of, I don't know, kind of be at his back. like Or he's very loyal to Vader, and Vader appreciates his competence, basically. Yeah. But the whole thing, like, he experiences a lot of anti-non-human anti sentiment and backlash, even though he's he becomes an admiral. Like, he's way, way up there. Yeah. So, you know, there you have this case of this, you know, it's like, very similar to like black exceptionalism and like the model minority thing where it's like in order to succeed in a incredibly biased environment that expects you to do worse because of who you are because of your identity it's incredibly damaging and it's difficult and it does show the ugliness in this like ideal like this the facade of this you know perfect system yeah it's like yeah it's like it's like a one-size-fits-all dress those don't exist yeah like they are built to a spec they're supposed to fit a particular type of person and not everyone is going to be that type of person yeah. So to bring it back to Mandalorian. Sorry. Point being, in the Mandalorian, the client is talking about how great the Empire is. You know, it's like, you know, the Romans were great for bringing roads to Britain and all this stuff, you know, and the aqueducts and everything. And it's like, yeah, sure, you might be good good at infrastructure and mobilizing an army, but that doesn't mean that you're good at everything. And what they're doing is bulldozing cultures and explicitly in this case they're destroying worlds that don't agree with them they are conscripting and oppressing other races and which we you get a lot about it with quill's storyline right and you are and they're imposing a system of government and a system of like and a philosophy you know just a way of life that is optimized for a particular type of very structure loving humans that's not going to work for everyone in a diverse galaxy. Yeah, but within the Mandalorian. Well, yeah, but that's yeah. the problem. The problem with the Empire is that it's a colonizing force that's very narrow in its idea of what is good for everyone. Yeah, and I think that it's interesting because a lot of what you see in the Mandalorian is the stuff on the outskirts, which have largely been outskirts of the Empire. Mm -hmm. Like, culturally, the Mandalorians, I don't think, were doing lots of work for the Empire. Like, at least the uh, the ones in the, that we see in this aren't supporters of the Empire anyway. Right. And, um, like, uh, Boba Fett was a bounty hunter. He contracted with, like, the huts and stuff. Yeah. There's, um, like, Car Cardoon and Creel are both, like, I'm done, I'm over here, out outside that. And it's sort of this responsiveness of trying to push away from that larger organization of things and this sort of testiness about how that's mm -hmm. going to work out. It's very similar to Firefly yeah. with the, what is the central area in Firefly? The Alliance. the Alliance. Yeah, it's a lot like the Alliance in Firefly where they're like, you know, oh, you know, order and structure and, you know, things being predictable and 
everything. And it's like, yeah, but some things are messy. Some cultures are different. We like to make our own choices. We don't want to be told what to do by other people and told how things should be and made to feel shitty about the way we want to do things if it's not the same. Which is interesting to take that world where the Empire has, at at this point, been gone for a few years in the majority of it, Mm -hmm. have them attempting to be coming back and having this response of, no, we don't want that. But then have that as a, with a background of the Mandalorian in this society that enforces this strict conformity mm-hmm. that has a very strict code. Mm-hmm. But you get the, like, there's an interesting conversation that happens quite early on in the series where there's the question of what happens if you take it off? Mm-hmm. And he says, nothing, I can do that any time. Mm-hmm. But I can't put it back on again afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, like, he can always choose to leave, mm-hmm. I think is one of the big differences there. It's mm-hmm. something that he might have been indoctrinated into to an extent, it's mm-hmm. hard to say, but it is there is still a choice. Yeah, it's not something that's been imposed on him, which is, I think, the biggest part. I mean, it kind of was because he was rescued as a child and they took care of him. But I think, it. I mean, in that case, it reminds me of, like, the Amish community where you're usually raised, but you do have a choice to leave. And it, But if you leave, you can't come back. Yeah. If you decide to not be a full member of this community, you are no longer part of this community and, like, they won't communicate with you anymore. <coughs> Difference being, we don't know, really know if the Mandalorians have some sort of a, like, Roomspringa provision where you can kind of see what it's like to not be a Mandalorian, but I still think that the analogy holds. Yeah. You know, you are raised to this life, you are raised to this culture, but you can make your own choice to not do it, whereas the Empire is literally trying to impose a culture and an order onto everyone in the galaxy, and they want to just have it be the only choice for anybody, whether they want it or not. The other concern I have with the Mandalorian versus Empire thing is that you do see that same issues. You're allowed to be different heights as Mandalorians, mm-hmm. but it's that was what I was saying. It's like, mm-hmm. there's not a Twi'lek Mandalorian and there's not a Twi'lek Stormtrooper. If you're mm-hmm. a Twi'lek, you can either go and be a Jedi, mm-hmm. a criminal, or I think play in a band. I think those are the career options. You can be an exotic dancer. Ah, yes, there we go. I'm sure that there are... In fact, I'm almost certain. There are non-human Imperial soldiers. I think they're like the grunt level Uh, of Imperial soldiers. I mean, this is what I was talking about with all the non-human bias. Yeah. You know, it's like the everybody else. Yeah. Okay. Is there anything else you want to say on Empire? I might be wrong about there being non-human Imperial soldiers. I might want to check, but what were you going to say? Was there anything else you want to say about Empire? I mean, I think that the Nazi comparison is too shallow. I think that they're really a stand-in for any sort of overwhelmingly regimented colonizing force that's not even... I think it's very easy to... It could be the Romans. I'll say say this in my British voice. I think it's very easy to say Nazis in this situation. Mm -hmm. And it's easy to say Nazis because they very clearly lost. Yeah. Um, The Roman Empire would be very easy to say as well. The The British British Empire. Empire, The American Empire. uh, Yes, the American Empire, true. Like, any... Any culture that gets to a point where they think that their way of life is clearly the best and, you know, would just be better for everyone if they all did it that way. Yeah. Like, that's what we're seeing there. Yeah. And on that cheery note. But it's it's fascinating, though, with the American comparison because you also have this very independent perspective of Americans of, like, we don't want to be imposed upon in that way. We pride ourselves on our individuality and diversity. So there's, like, this internal backlash there. Yeah. But we still do it. Anyway. So I think that covers all the major topics we want to talk about? Yeah, I think so. 
But I think the big question that the series asks is, what does it mean to be a Mandalorian? And why does that justify a whole series? I think that the series, to me so far, is pointing at Mandalorians fundamentally being protectors, and the creed being centered on that. I think you get a lot of that because, I mean, the person who seems to be in charge of the clan is the armorer. Like, she literally makes things that you use to protect yourself, and the weapons that you use to protect yourself or defend yourself and defend other people. They only come out in force it seems, to defend and rescue people. Yeah. And then they leave immediately so that they're no longer vulnerable. The the whole thing about the foundlings, you know, this is the way that you adopt a foundling. You, if you have a foundling in your care, they're your responsibility until you can either reunite them or until they can take care of themselves, having been raised in the way. And that they are also the future. Like, so you're also protecting the creed in doing that so that it can go on. So yeah. like I, I think that, that fundamentally the Mandalorians are protectors. Yeah, I think that tracks. Did you have anything to say on uh, why that's a whole series? I think that they that Disney knows they can make it a whole series because of how everyone of everyone's fascination with Boba Fett. Yeah. And like the mystery around that character and you know, that we hadn't seen other Mandalorians in the original trilogy. I think it's interesting. They had this effectively clean slate that mm-hmm. they could work with for Mandalorian. They've decanonized all the EU. Mm-hmm. You just have Boba Fett. You could have made a TV series that was more like, I don't know, Leverage? Mm-hmm. Or just something uh, instead where, where the, like in that first episode where he turns up and he gets his bounty and he doesn't take any shit. Mm-hmm. Like, that could be a series. Mm-hmm. Um, and the message could be that Mandalorian's a badass. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But they've gone in this very different direction, mm-hmm. where a Mandalorian is caring. They mm-hmm. adopt people. As you say, they're protectors. And I think that that's... I'm sure that our society has a market for a badass Mandalorian series. Mm-hmm. And they've managed to make a badass Mandalorian series that isn't that one. Mm-hmm. And I think that it sort of speaks to some of the concerns in our culture at the moment. Mm-hmm. that we're not looking out for people, we're not protecting orphaned children properly, etc. Mm-hmm. I think it's trying to espouse what our ideals should be. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about Veronica Mars recently, mm-hmm. and we came away at the end of that and said, you shouldn't want to be Veronica. I think if you watch The Mandalorian and you want to be The Mandalorian, that's fine. Yeah. It's recasting toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. Um, you can be a man's man as much as you want. Mm-hmm. And still care about those in need. Mm-hmm. Um, Be nurturing. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a certain amount to which he does things out of self-interest first. Mm-hmm. But he still does it when he needs to. Like, he protects mm-hmm. the village. Like, at first he's like, mm, no, that's that's a lot of work and not what I need to be doing. And then he's like, okay. I'll... Yeah, and he also, like, tries to get Kara to leave without him and things like that. And it's like, yeah. no, I don't want you to be the reason that you die. Um, I was going to say that it's it seems to be, in a lot of ways, a response to toxic masculinity. And it reminds me of there is a campaign that is pushing back against toxic masculinity and pushing back against rape culture and things like that. And it's... I'm, I'm trying to remember the name of the campaign, but essentially, like, a, a lot of the messaging is centered around this idea of my strength is not for hurting. Yeah. And it's about 
reframing men being, on average, more physically powerful as a responsibility to protect other people and to look out for other people and to be aware of their impact on others rather than as an excuse to be violent or as like a justification that like, well, men are just violent or men are just this, that or whatever. Yeah. I think there's a lot of subtle things that show also a progression away from that toxic masculinity and like the more aggressive side of things throughout the series. And I mean, there's there's the little things as he gets more affectionate with the child. And, mm-hmm. You know, it's is one of the other men people. in the series too. Like there's Quirrell, who is another male figure in the series, who is also is he male. He seems to be a male character. I don't really know because it's a non-human species they might even have binary gender he is in fact actually voiced by a man and uh, the body actor is a woman so <laughs> but minor point i'm being picky please carry on well a character that reads at least to me as male who is initially acting in to protect the interests of his community even if it's not necessarily protective of the bounty then also reprograms a bounty hunter droid to be a nurse droid yeah which he does before they have custody of the child. Yeah. Which is interesting. And he primarily seems to fix things and, like, he ends up being a, a diplomat and a peacemaker, or, you know, negotiating between the Jawas and the Mandalorian. Like, so even yeah. he ends up being this non-aggressive character. But I think one of the things that you sort of see as a sort of subtle move there is in the start of the series, he's using this rifle that just vaporizes people. And, the Mandalorian? Yeah. Yeah. And as he gets on, he loses that rifle, I think, mm-hmm. and starts getting less and less aggressive to the point where he goes from vaporizing people left and right and center to he's on that prison ship and he's locking people up that he could very easily vaporize and no one would miss them, locking them in a cell instead. Yeah. Which must have been a lot of work to drag them in there. So. Yeah. You know, they didn't make it easy. Yeah, I, I definitely think there's a, a strong continuing circling to this idea of the Mandalorian Creed as being about protecting others and particularly the vulnerable among us, people who've lost their communities, children. And that's the story that's being told here is like why that is a virtuous and interesting thing. Yeah. Why that's compelling. Okay. So I think that answers the big question. But I think the bigger question is if you just kind of covertly leave a child in the care of somebody else without that person knowing that they're effectively babysitting, just how much price gouging is justified in that situation? Because we definitely see the mechanic on Tatooine who's like, oh no, I'm going to babysit you and I'm going to charge your guardian like out the ass for that. And and when we were watching this, I was like, justified, because that was uh, not cool of the Mandalorian to do. Yeah, I think I think the amount that's justified is all of it. <laughs> and I think the Mandalorian probably pays just about the right amount for that, maybe. <laughs> uh, how about this pile of gold? <laughs> yeah, that seems about right. Maybe the bigger question is, should there really be, like, maybe some galactic daycare services? <laughs> it would make the series a lot easier for the Mandalorian. On the Try Guys podcast... Ned was saying that one of his friends had told him that basically it was a show about how hard it is to arrange for childcare when you're like a single father or something and just how terrible the Mandalorian is at doing that. And I feel like Ned's friend, not wrong. Like, yeah, he keeps just thinking you can leave a essentially like a toddler just unsupervised in a 
complicated mechanical ship that includes like a carbon freezing unit and that'll be fine and um having not adequately supervised toddlers in the past uh that's how you end up with a dog covered in salt pepper and maple syrup so yeah Uh, the mandalorian's daycare service is stink (laughs) it's like toddlers and not are not dogs (laughs) narrator comes in the child did not stay (laughs) yes as they generally don't. Uh, shall we move on to fun facts? Yes. Okay, so I've got a, a few ones about cast and production for us. Okay. So, obviously the child, or baby Yoda, has become very popular across the internet, which is probably a good thing, considering that, reportedly, the production costs of it, that puppet cost $5 million. Holy shit! This um, came out after the scene with the two scout troopers, who are played by Adam Pally and Jason Sudeikis, mm-hmm. and just have their own little cameo, which is presumably why they throw in some skits about the fact that they can't shoot things for shit. Mm-hmm. Apparently when they're punching the mm-hmm. baby, like the first time, like, punched it and the director came over and was like, hmm, hmm that was good. Uh, maybe a little lighter in the next shot, because five million dollars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> ah! Oh god. I haven't seen what the price tag of the one that they're doing at Build-A-Bear is, but presumably it'll be a little bit lower. Yeah, you've got to make it affordable enough that people can buy it. So the whole show has quite a lot of sort of cameos, either from big actors or from members of the writing staff and creators. Mm-hmm. I mentioned J- Jaden Sudeikis is in there. Amy Sedaris plays the... Mechanic on Tatooine. Yes, yeah. me- mechanic slash, slash babysitter, which is more obvious than some others. Uh, Richard Ayoade, who people might know from the IT crowd if they watch British sitcoms, does the voice of Zero in The Prison Ship. The big red dude in the same episode is played by Clancy Brown, who fans of Highlander or the Carnival, the Shawshank Redemption, or the video game Detroit Become Human might recognise. Taiki Watiti, who directed Thor Ragnarok as well as one of the episodes of Mandalorian and played Korg in Ragnarok, uh, is the voice for IG in those three episodes, including the last episode that he directs where he valiantly sacrifices himself. Really, I think that's a clever ploy to preserve the childcare issue that is so central to and so much of what happens yeah. in the first season. It's like, you can't have this convenient security nursery droid who can just watch the baby and be trusted to defend it. That makes things way too easy for the Mandalorian. And then John Favreau, who's the sort of main creator guy for it, in the scene in the armory where the large Mandalorian is challenging the title character mm-hmm. about working for the Imperials, that is voiced by John Favreau. And then apparently three of the other creators made a joke about having cameos and ended up playing the three X-Wing pilots that attack the like home base after the prison ship episode. Yeah. It's kind of fun. The last one I have is there is a reference from in the first episode, the bounty that the Mandalorian is picking up in, in that first scene mm-hmm. makes a reference about having to get home for life day. Right. Which is a thing that was first created during the famous, during the infamous holiday special. Right. Uh, that they're all celebrating Life Day in that. Uh, so it was a nice little nod to everyone who hated that. What that, you got? That 1970s spectacular. <laughs> so when we were watching the show, you asked about the Darksaber that Moff Gideon uses to cut his way out of the X-Wing, or not out of the X-Wing, out of the TIE Fighter. Yeah. And you were like, I wonder if that's a thing. And I told you, a black lightsaber is a thing. I can't remember what it is, but I'll look it up. 
Well, I looked it up, and it is called a Darksaber. It is a unique weapon, and it was made by the first Mandalorian to join the Jedi Order. Oh. And it became, like, a, a symbol of leadership in a particular, like, clan of Mandalorians. And it was sort of passed down, and it got stolen, and then it got retaken by the Mandalorians. It's like a whole thing. So I don't want to get into it too much, but it is a thing. Oh. So it was made by a Mandalorian, which makes it particularly appropriate that it is uh, being wielded by the opponent of the Mandalorian. And presumably it's part of why this guy knows so much about Mandalorian. Right. And would also, once the Mandalorian finds out that he has it, would presumably be an impetus to, like, try and get it. Because it's something like the Mandalorian's... It would be like the Beskar of something where they felt it's theirs, they should have it, it's inappropriate for other people to have it, and, you know, yeah. So we're going to get the child... Fully force using in a couple of seasons and wielding a dark saber. Maybe, maybe that, that's, that's where they're leading. Twice as big as it is. Yeah. The other fun fact that I wanted to include is some more details about what a Camtono is and why it shows up in Mandalorian. So Camtono is the like security, like safe thing that the client gives the, the Beskar to the Mandalorian in. He's right. like, I have a Camtono of Beskar when you deliver the asset or whatever and then later carl weathers is trying to convince the mandalorian to like let all of his ethics go and is just like just get a camtono of spice and like forget about all of this for a few days or whatever and so a camtono is a container like a secure container and if you'll remember from the show it's like a cylindrical thing with like a handle on top and this is actually a reference to like in the evacuation of cloud city you can see a guy carrying something like that through the halls and people realized that the prop that was used for that is a hamilton beach ice cream maker that they still make okay so a bunch of people made a whole lot of fun of this guy and like the city's being evacuated what do i take with me my ice cream maker and so um, this guy has been being ribbed for the past, like, 40 years um, because of this or whatever. And uh, anyway, so <laughs> this was just sort of like an Easter egg thing. People figured out, oh, that's the prop that was used, right? Well, there was also, like, a viral video of a small child who incorrectly said ice cream as Camtono. And so, <laughs> like, this all kind of circles back in together. And they've <laughs> they've made this a thing in the Star Wars universe, clearly, that the ice cream machine-looking container is called the not-ice-cream-sounding word-for-ice-cream of a viral video. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There are totally, like, articles written about this. I actually first found out about it from a Super Carlin Brothers video about it, so... I might hunt down that link and include it in the show notes because it's a fun video, but yeah. It's... And also a link to where people can buy the Hamilton Beach ice cream maker. I mean, sure. I mean, it's clearly a decent ice, ice cream maker. They've been making it since the 70s or and 80s or whatever. And you can keep all your precious materials. And you can keep all of your precious spice and Beskar in it. It's like, you know, talk about a multifunctional household appliance. But yeah, I thought it would amuse you. It did. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, those were my two. I felt like okay. the ice cream machine one was, was good. Did you want to talk about a late thought from our Veronica Mars episode? Sure, yes. I realized after we'd recorded that I had forgotten to mention another thing that the Den of Geek article that we put in the show notes points out, which is the relationship 
between Veronica Mars and Buffy the Vampire Slayer in terms of, like, the cultural landscape of the time. Sorry, our cat shadow has the zooms. Veronica Mars started not long after Buffy the Vampire Slayer was over and had a similar audience and structure and major story time, major story beats. Like, it's a teenage girl who's got a disproportionate amount of responsibility for her community, even though she's kind of taken it on, it hasn't been put on her in the same way as with Buffy. And there's a similar dynamic where she feels isolated and marginalized and like she can't really tell, talk to people about what she's doing, but is still recognized for a lot of her efforts over time by the community. So there was that aspect as well that I thought um, was worth pointing out. Did you have anything to say about it? That's an interesting point, actually, because Joss Whedon does make an appearance in season two of Veronica Mars hmm. for a small cameo. Cool. Also, as far as feedback, we have a review. Yay! We have been trying to see where we have reviews and have mostly been, like, a lot of the podcast apps don't have take reviews in. I've been keeping my eyes on the iTunes, but I realized I had only been looking at the American iTunes. And I found an aggregator for other ones. So we actually have a review on the UK iTunes store. So thanks for Grimdelf, whoever you are, for leaving us a review. Uh, it said, a very fun and interesting podcast. The hosts are delightful, very well informed, and have a very relevant educational backgrounds and experience to unramble the subject of their discussions. Aww. So, it's a nice little ego trip for us. <laughs> Thank you. We really, really appreciate reviews, and if people could leave some more and whatever feedback they have, even if that is constructive criticism, we're totally open to that. We are, as you may have noticed, uh, trying to be a little bit less... Long-winded? Yeah. We're trying to be a little less long-winded in these by narrowing down the main topics we want to talk about, and and so we would really appreciate people's feedback on like the structure and you know things like that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, please leave us reviews wherever you can, and we will... Try and find them and read them out. That's natural segue to our social media. Yes. So you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Unramblings, on Twitter at UnramblingsPod, or you can email us if you have any uh, other feedback or direct messages that for some reason you don't want to put in a review. Or that you want to just contribute to the discussion of a particular topic, that would be great too. Yeah. Uh, you can also continue on discussion of the topic on social media with the hashtag Unramblings. Uh, hopefully... People can start talking on those and we can weigh in a little bit as well. Mm -hmm. We do also sort of have a website now, by which I mean I've piggybacked it off my website for other stuff. You can find that at markcollington.com forward slash unramblings. I think that's it. Thank you for listening to Unramblings. We hope you'll join us next week. I'm probably going to make a really dumb joke during this podcast. Just the one? At least one. One in particular. It's a premeditated terrible joke. That's the best kind of terrible joke. Is it? Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs>